0: Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and anti-Semitism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On March 11, 1938, Vienna, Austria was a powder keg. That evening, Austrian Nazis, supported by German troops on the border, succeeded in installing Hitler's puppet as chancellor. As a result, Austria was officially annexed into Germany.
0: However, by the time victory was secured, the Nazi uprising had spiraled out of control. The Schutzstaffel, or SS, Learned that a group of rogue SA men planned to seize the presidential palace and possibly kill President Wilhelm Miklas.
1: The Nazis didn't want to spark an international incident. The death of Miklas could easily ruin Hitler's annexation of Austria. They needed someone to restrain the SA.
0: They chose 29 year old Otto Skorzeny, a member of the Austrian SS. He was tall, strong, and unflappable, the perfect man to prevent bloodshed.
1: Eager to prove himself, Scorzeny sprung into action. He and a dozen men packed into a few cars and rushed to the presidential palace. After they arrived, the S.A. and the presidential guard quickly entered a standoff.
0: One wrong move, and the palace could turn into a bloodbath. The fate of the Anschluss was in Otto Skorzeny's hands.
1: At least, that's how he described it. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard,
0: and I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: This season, we're exploring the lives of Hitler's henchmen. These officers helped the Nazi leader build his regime and spread terror across Europe.
0: This week, we're exploring the rise of Otto Skorzeny, an Austrian-born Waffen-SS commando. For years, Skorzeny was unable to satisfy his thirst for military glory. But all that changed when Hitler personally chose him to help rescue Benito Mussolini.
1: Next week, we'll look at some of the special forces missions Skorzeny led or participated in. We'll also explore his post-war trial and his long struggle to revitalize Nazism long after World War II.
0: We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. New season, out on Spotify soon.
1: Of the henchmen covered this season, Otto Skorzeny had the least amount of power in the Third Reich. Rather than playing a significant role in the Holocaust, Skorzeny contributed differently when it came to advancing Hitler's vision.
0: Like Himmler and Heydrich, Skorzeny was a member of the Schutzstaffel, or SS. However, he belonged to the Waffen-SS, the organization's combat branch. Instead of determining the fates of millions, Skorzeny was a commando.
1: Though he was plucked from obscurity, Skorzeny ultimately participated in some of the Nazis' more infamous clandestine operations. He contributed to the brutal suppression of Danish resistance, as well as the German occupation of Hungary.
0: But arguably, his most famous and daring operation was the rescue of Benito Mussolini during the Allied invasion of Italy. It became the defining moment of his life.
1: Yet despite the great fame he won, Scorzeny's actual abilities were modest at best. His strongest skill was being able to seize an opportunity when it presented itself and knowing how to sell his own story.
0: Whether it was entirely true or not.
1: As with Himmler and Heydrich, Otto Skorzeny hailed from a modestly well-off bourgeois family. Born and raised in Vienna in 1908, Skorzeny was surrounded by mathematics and science. His father was an engineer who owned a construction company.
0: Young Otto inherited his father's aptitude for the mechanical. In 1926, he began studying engineering at Vienna's Technical University. As was so often the case, it seemed as if the son was destined to follow in the father's footsteps.
1: However, during his second year at school, Skorzeny discovered a passion that would ultimately lead him down a completely different path—sword fighting.
0: Skorzeny came from a long line of military men, and that need for glory through combat coursed through his veins. Fencing quickly became a way to satiate his thirst.
1: Skorzeny joined the school's Schlagende Verbindung, or Academic Dueling Club. One of the most appealing aspects of the club was for its members to inflict and receive ostentatious facial scars. These scars were badges of honor. They denoted that the bearer belonged to the respectable class and he had proven himself as a man.
0: In 1928, Scorzeny received his badge of honor, a long cut running from his chin to his left ear. He took pride in his facial enhancement. He said, My knowledge of pain, learned with the saber, taught me not to be afraid of fear.
1: But the dueling club did more than just provide an outlet for manliness and camaraderie. It was also a hotbed for radicalism. Through his association with the duelists, Scorzeny developed a taste for politics.
0: Growing up in the immediate aftermath of the Austrian Empire's collapse, Skorzeny absorbed the general sense of resentment among the people. Like many of his contemporaries, he dreamed of a greater German Reich that would unite the Germanic race and restore its pre-war power. Skorzeny
1: never described a trigger for his embrace of German nationalism. It was simply a given In his memoirs, he consistently states that he believed Austrians were Germans and that Austria should have been a part of the 19th century unification of Germany.
0: In the wake of World War I, such nationalism and patriotism ran high among the Austrian dualists. And in 1927, likely inspired by his fencing friends, Skorzeny joined a student academic legion, a nationalist paramilitary group with chapters across Austrian universities.
1: More importantly, this group was deeply associated with an even more influential far-right paramilitary group, the Heimwehr, or Home Guard.
0: The Heimwehr arose in response to Austria's post-war political and economic problems. When the war ended, Austria was left as a politically weak rump state beset by inflation and civil unrest. The Heimwehr promised stability and strength in opposition to the Republikanischer Schutzbund, a similar group associated with left-wing political parties.
1: As the Heimwehr absorbed more paramilitary organizations at the end of the 1920s, Scorzény quickly forged ties with the Heimwehr. According to Scorzény biographer Stuart Smith, by 1931, he stood out enough to become a platoon leader.
0: Scorzény liked the Heimwehr at first because it was anti-establishment. Most members stood in opposition to liberal democracy, which was seen by many on the far-right as weak and ineffectual. Just as important, some factions embraced the Anschluss, or unification with Germany. This was a dream among all pan-German nationalists.
1: But like most far-right organizations at this time, the Heimwehr lacked organizational cohesion. In the early 30s, some of the leadership decided to join parliament and form a coalition government with another political party. To accomplish this, the Heimwehr agreed to drop its support for the Anschluss.
0: Many politically apathetic youths, like Skorzeny, saw this as a betrayal. Soon, he and other bourgeois Austrians left the Heimwehr and looked elsewhere for pan-German support. They found it in the Nazi party.
1: For many middle-class Austrians, the most appealing aspects of the Nazi Party were its rejection of post-war Austrian political tradition and support of pan-Germanism. Austria suffered the effects of the Great Depression, and as many blamed this on the post-war government, the cure seemed to be unification. Perhaps that could turn the economy around.
0: Unfortunately, many Austrians also supported the party's blatant anti-Semitism. Though a minority, Vienna's Jews were, broadly speaking, economically successful. As a result, struggling Christian Austrians grew increasingly resentful.
1: Otto Skorzeny's anti-Semitism likely was formed at his first introduction to the Nazi party. In 1932, he saw Josef Goebbels give a speech in Vienna, where he claimed he found Goebbels' ideals decisive to the formation of his beliefs. Skorzeny quickly embraced the Nazi Party's anti-Semitic and racist ideology, and just after witnessing Goebbels in Vienna in May 1932, he officially joined the Austrian branch.
0: A year later, the Nazi party was banned by Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss. Dollfuss wasn't against fascism. Rather, he wanted to create his own fascist party. As a result, the Austrian Nazis went underground. This
1: didn't deter Skorzeny. And in short time, he became even more committed to the Nazi cause. In February 1934, he joined the party's elite paramilitary wing the Schutzstaffel, or SS.
0: Joining the SS was everything Skorzeny could have asked for. Its uniforms and structure brought with it a sense of prestige and honor that Skorzeny loved. And as an elite paramilitary organization, perhaps there was a chance at glory in combat.
1: Such glory and prestige was closer than Skorzeny realized.
0: Throughout the 1930s, Austria's fascist chancellors promised to keep Austria independent. While there was a growing demand from the far right, as well as pressure from Hitler, the government refused to join with Germany.
1: However, that changed throughout 1937. Hitler and Italian dictator Benito Mussolini grew closer as allies, and as a result, Austria became isolated. A two-front invasion seemed like a real possibility.
0: Still, Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnigg didn't want to completely cave to Hitler's unification demands. Instead, he left the issue of the Anschluss to the people. On March 9, 1938, he called a plebiscite on unification.
1: Hitler was outraged. In response, he amassed German troops on the border and demanded that Schuschnigg call off the vote.
0: Meanwhile, Austrian Nazis took to the streets and threatened to seize government buildings. An uprising was suddenly in full effect.
1: The chaos came to a head on the evening of March 11, 1938. Around 40 SS members forced their way into the chancellery and demanded Schuschnick's resignation. With no other option, he acquiesced. He was promptly replaced with Hitler's puppet, Arthur zeiss Ingwart.
0: Two days later, German forces rolled into Austria, completing the Anschluss.
1: Otto Skorzeny claimed to have been shocked to learn about the uprisings. According to him, he was hanging out in a gym with friends when news of the insurrection reached him.
0: To some extent, this was true. He was not present during the initial storming of the chancellery. However, he arrived in time to hear about Shushnik's resignation. And then he was given a special mission, save President Wilhelm Miklas.
1: As Scorzeny described in his autobiographies, throughout the chaos, word reached the SS that a group of SA men were planning to seize control of the presidential palace. Though the SA had long since lost its influence due to the Night of the Long Knives, some units lingered.
0: The SS feared that if these units took the presidential palace, it could spark an international incident. Hitler wanted the public face of German unification to be peaceful. The last thing he needed was for a rogue group of rabble-rousers to ruin everything. So Skorzeny was chosen to defuse the situation.
1: Years later, Skorzeny claimed he was picked because everyone knew he was calm under pressure. In reality, it was potentially because he was one of the few people on hand who had access to a
0: car. Skorzeny and a small SS unit went to the presidential palace and confronted Miklas's presidential guard and later the SA unit. Chaos ensued as all sides were willing to spill blood, the SS to ensure order, the SA to seize Miklas, and the guardsmen to protect him.
1: During the mayhem, Skorzeny stepped forward and managed to calm everyone down. According to him, he convinced Miklas to call the newly installed chancellor and have the chancellor vouch for the SS. When Miklas received confirmation, Skorzeny then took command of the presidential guard. Thankfully, there was no violence.
0: Or so Skorzeny claimed... Others, like Miklas, say that Skorzeny barged into the palace and placed him under house arrest.
1: Details aside, the incident at the presidential palace proved to be the first true moment of glory for Skorzeny. As Hitler continued to look east in order to expand German territory, Skorzeny realized it was only a matter of time before he could achieve more.
0: Coming up, Skorzeny desperately searches for his combat glory. Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan. And this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: 29-year-old Otto Skorzeny played a small part in the Nazi annexation of Austria. As a member of the SS, he proved his worth to his Nazi superiors by preventing a shootout at the Austrian presidential palace.
0: Though Skorzeny likely embellished some of the details, that didn't negate the fact that he finally tasted glory. He knew that it was only a matter of time before he could increase his fame and prestige.
1: Ultimately, Skorzeny had to wait over a year for that opportunity to arise. On September 1, 1939, Germany launched its invasion of Poland, sparking World War II in Europe.
0: Answering the call to arms, Skorzeny volunteered for the Luftwaffe, or German Air Force. The Luftwaffe appealed to Skorzeny's sense of sport and adventure, with its dashing pilots they had a certain image of chivalry.
1: But at six foot four, Skorzeny was too big to fit in a fighter plane. And at 31, he was considered too old for training. Instead, he was dumped in a communications depot.
0: Not content to be a desk jockey during a war, Skorzeny searched for a way to join the fight. In 1940, he learned that the Waffen SS, the combat branch of the SS, was on the lookout for officers with technical proficiency. Skorzeny, with his engineering background, saw it as a natural fit.
1: In April 1941, Skorzeny received his first combat command, participating in the Nazi invasion of Yugoslavia.
0: But that wasn't enough for Skorzeny. Most of the fights he saw were modest skirmishes. He left each battle wanting more. As luck should have it, Hitler was about to give Skorzeny another opportunity at glory.
1: On June 22, 1941, the Nazis launched Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. The largest land invasion in history, Hitler hoped to catch the Soviets by surprise and knock them out of the war before they even entered it.
0: Skorzeny's Waffen SS unit was given one of the most important missions of the entire operation, capture Moscow.
1: After months of brutal fighting, the unit came within sight of Moscow in early December 1941. However, the Soviet Red Army put up heavy resistance and forced the Nazis to settle in for the winter.
0: Unfortunately for the Nazis, but fortunately for the Soviets, That winter turned out to be the coldest in Europe of the 20th century. Since the Germans had expected a quick victory, they were entirely unprepared.
1: The bitter cold took a heavy toll on German engines like tanks and transportation vehicles. As a result, Scorzeny spent most of his time repairing the army's suffering machines.
0: With the German army stalled just outside of Moscow, the Soviets launched a counter-offensive. Overwhelmed, much of the German army, including Skorzeny's Waffen-SS unit, retreated more than 150 miles.
1: The fighting took a massive toll on Skorzeny physically and mentally. At one point, he was struck in the head with shrapnel, which left him with chronic migraines. He also suffered from ceaseless gallbladder pain. The illnesses became such a problem that he was transferred from the front lines in January 1942.
0: After being pulled from the Eastern Front, he spent the bulk of the next year toiling as an engineer officer and instructor in Berlin.
1: In September, he thought his fortunes turned around. He was promoted to lieutenant transferred to an SS Totenkopf, or Death's Head Tank Battalion, and sent to Vichy, France.
0: However, within a few months, his medical issues once again forced him into a hospital bed. From there, he stewed and grew frustrated at his inability to contribute to the German war machine.
1: Especially as that war machine steadily deteriorated.
0: Throughout 1942, the German military had become bogged down in a war of attrition against the Soviets. Hitler had believed defeating the Soviet Union was going to be easy, but the Red Army refused to surrender.
1: To make matters worse, in November, the Western Allies launched Operation Torch in North Africa. Within a little over a week, the Allies kicked the Axis forces out of French Morocco and secured most of North Africa. Not only was this a major strategic loss, but morale among the Germans fell.
0: As Germany's fortunes floundered, Otto Skorzeny grew restless. He needed to get back to the front lines. In spring
1: 1943, Skorzeny learned of yet another opportunity that might help him see action. Apparently, an SS unit in his division was about to receive extra resources. Presumably more money and better equipment. Exactly what this meant, Skorzeny did not know, but it was worth
0: asking around. He reached out to an old SS friend named Ernst Kaltenbrunner. As it just so happened, Kaltenbrunner was director of the Reich Security Main Office, succeeding Reinhard Heydrich after Heydrich's assassination. Kalten Brunner was more than happy to help out a fellow Austrian.
1: On Kalton Brunner's recommendation, Skorzeny was summoned to Waffen-SS headquarters in April 1943. Once there, Skorzeny discovered that Hitler was going to change up his war strategy.
0: The vast majority of senior military officers didn't believe in unconventional warfare. Since the age of Napoleon, the German military subscribed to a more traditional way of fighting. As such, clandestine missions were rare.
1: But Hitler realized that Germany wasn't winning the war the old-fashioned way. He needed something different. He needed commandos who could operate behind the front line, attack supply lines, destroy bridges, and everything in between.
0: As a veteran Waffen SS officer with technical proficiency, Skorzeny was ideally suited to lead this new strategy. So on April 20th, 1943, Otto Skorzeny was given control of SS special forces.
1: Skorzeny likely owed his appointment to the fact that Ernst Kaltenbrunner had recently been promoted and needed reliable henchmen of his own. More than anything, Skorzeny got the job simply because he was a trustworthy Austrian Nazi and friendly with Kaltenbrunner.
0: Still, that didn't mean Skorzeny was going to rest on his laurels. Far from it. Shortly after his appointment, Skorzeny met with his immediate superior, Walter Schellenberg, a powerful spymaster. Schellenberg gave Skorzeny two tasks— The first was to run the training school for commandos, and the second was to oversee SS Jaeger Battalion 502, one of the newly established elite commando squads.
1: If Scorzeny imagined he would soon be fighting as a dashing, adventurous hero, he was sorely mistaken. Once again, he found himself behind a desk and burdened by inter-office rivalry. Worse, He quickly realized he faced two major problems—equipment and recruits.
0: Despite promises of extra resources, Scorzeny could never seem to get enough equipment. Much of what his commandos used wasn't even German. It was stolen British equipment that had been airdropped to British soldiers.
1: Meanwhile, the best recruits were being allocated to the Eastern Front. Struggling to fill the ranks, Skorzeny and his staff were reduced to trying to conscript inmates from an
0: SS penal camp. But Skorzeny refused to give up. Over the next few weeks, he managed to attract more respectable recruits. Unlike traditional SS standards, so-called pure Aryan blood was not required. Wartime casualties had forced the SS to backpedal on its own absurd ethnic and racial restrictions. Thus, recruits began to include Italians, Serbs, and Arabs.
1: These men trained at Skorzeny's commando school at Friedenthal. They were taught the basics of unconventional warfare, explosives, sabotage, and radio communication.
0: None of this training came from Skorzeny's genius. Rather, much of it stemmed from captured Allied commandos. Skorzeny demanded that his interrogators ask about British training methods during questioning.
1: By the start of summer 1943, Skorzeny discovered that he was actually pretty good at training men in clandestine operations. It was a quick turnaround from the hopelessness he felt just a few months earlier. However, there was one nagging question – what was their mission?
0: The war situation was growing more desperate for Germany with each passing day. By the middle of 1943, the Third Reich was hopelessly losing the war.
1: On all fronts except the Western, the Nazis were steadily being pushed back and without the manpower or resources to replace their losses. Meanwhile, Allied planes had started bombing German cities, which suddenly brought the war home. But the biggest crisis to threaten Germany's success came from its ally, Italy.
0: In July, Allied forces landed in Sicily. Unquestionably, the island would be a springboard for a full-scale invasion of Italy. And if Italy fell, Germany's entire southern front would be vulnerable. Rather
1: than sacrifice themselves on the altar of fascist ambition, Italy's power brokers decided it was time to get out of the war. Perhaps if they switched sides, the country could avoid an orgy of bloodshed on its soil. Or even better, mitigate post-war punishment.
0: So, on July 25, 1943, King Victor Emmanuel III and Marshal Pietro Badoglio managed to remove Mussolini from power and place him under arrest. This was a prerequisite for negotiations with the Allies.
1: Mussolini didn't put up a fight. The Italian war effort had been a disaster. According to historian Max Hastings, Mussolini's spirit was broken. He was resigned to defeat and seemed chiefly concerned to save his own skin.
0: With Mussolini removed from power, an Italian surrender seemed inevitable. Hitler couldn't allow that to happen. But this meant Mussolini had to be put back in power, whether he liked it or not. Someone would have to rescue him.
1: Enter Otto Skorzeny and his special forces.
0: Coming up, Skorzeny launches a manhunt for a missing Italian dictator. Now back to the story.
1: In spring 1943, 35-year-old Otto Skorzeny was given a prominent role in the Nazis' nascent special forces. After some initial logistical setbacks, Skorzeny managed to whip his commandos into shape. The only problem he faced was that he had no mission.
0: On July 26, 1943, Skorzeny went out to lunch with an old friend and proceeded to get drunk. Realizing that the lunch had gone long, he excused himself and called his office for messages.
1: To Skorzeny's surprise, he discovered that his secretary had been trying to reach him for two hours. He was being summoned to the wolf's lair. Hitler's headquarters in East Prussia.
0: Skorzeny rushed to the airport and boarded a plane. For the next three hours, he continued to drink, hoping to calm his nerves. After all, this was going to be his first time meeting the Fuhrer.
1: Once Skorzeny arrived at the Wolf's Lair, Hitler's aide ushered him into a building called the Tea House. Before Skorzeny knew it, He was thrown into a meeting with Hitler and five other military officers.
0: Skorzeny trembled. His drunken nerves made it impossible for him to compose himself. But either he was a good actor, or Hitler was too busy to notice the alcohol on Skorzeny's breath.
1: Skorzeny's nerves subsided when Hitler asked if any of the officers were familiar with Italy. Scorzani, according to his own accounts, answered that he had visited the country twice before the war. As it turned out, he was the only guest in the room who had.
0: Hitler then asked what each of them thought of Italy. The other officers all stuck to the party line, remarking very obviously that Italy was also in the Axis alliance. Scorzani, on the other hand, simply replied, I am an Austrian.
1: This was a loaded answer. According to historian Stuart Smith, quote, to any fellow Austrian, these words were pregnant with meaning. As one of the victors in World War I, Italy had annexed the Alpine South Tyrol with its 200,000 Austrian-German speakers.
0: Impressed, Hitler dismissed the other officers. Alone, Hitler proceeded to explain to Scorzèni the Italian situation and how it was imperative that the Germans rescue Mussolini before the Italian king and Marshal Badoglio could make peace with the Allies.
1: The rescue mission was dubbed Operation Oak and led by Luftwaffe Lieutenant General Kurt Student. But Hitler believed that Scorzeny and his commandos were just the men to help see it succeed.
0: On the morning of July 27th, Scorzeny and Student flew to rome meeting with a team of 50 commandos involved in the operation once they touched down though they found out their mission had changed a few days earlier mussolini had vanished the germans not only had to rescue the italian dictator they had to find him
1: the manhunt was a major priority for the germans Heinrich Himmler even joined the search by putting together a team of astrologers, fortune tellers, and psychics. He hoped through clairvoyance they could pinpoint Mussolini's whereabouts. They couldn't.
0: Just about everyone seemed to have a different idea as to where Mussolini went. One person heard he was on the island of Santo Stefano, another claimed he was on a different island called Ponza.
1: For nearly a month, Scorzeny chased after these rumors. Finally, one of them paid off. A German naval officer stationed on the La Maddalena informed him that security on the island had suddenly become much tighter.
0: Skorzeny sent one of his commandos to the island posing as an interpreter to investigate the lead. At the same time, he personally flew a reconnaissance plane over La Maddalena with the hopes of capturing aerial proof.
1: But the biggest breakthrough came from, of all places, a fruit seller. According to Scorzeny's autobiography, on August 23rd, a fruit vendor boasted to one of the commandos that he'd seen Il Duce on the island with his
0: own eyes. After relaying the lead to his superiors, Scorzeny was brought into a conference at the Wolf's Lair. Among those in attendance were Hitler, Himmler, and Hermann Göring.
1: According to his own account, Scorzini convinced Hitler that Mussolini was indeed on La Maddalena. He advocated for a flotilla of speedboats, minesweepers, and transports to descend on the island and nab the fallen Italian leader. Without objection, Hitler gave the operation a green light.
0: Though Scorzini may have made the presentation to Hitler, the actual rescue plan was not his own idea, as he later claimed. In fact, the whole thing had been put together by Kurt Student and a group of naval officers.
1: And in the end, it wasn't a plan worth stealing credit for. When Scorzeny traveled to La Maddalena, they discovered the island hideout deserted. Il Duce was gone.
0: Luck, though, was on Scorzeny's side. On September 5th, a German agent intercepted a message to the Italian Ministry of the Interior. It simply stated, Security precautions around the Gran Sasso complete.
1: Located in central Italy, the Gran Sasso is a massif in the Apennine Mountains. On the massif was, and still is, a ski resort called the Hotel Campo Imperatore.
0: Not long after this message, the Germans learned that the hotel's staff had all been recently dismissed. To them, this hinted at the possibility that Mussolini was hiding there.
1: On September 8th, Scorzeny and two other agents flew a reconnaissance plane over the hotel, hoping to confirm the intel. However, the images yielded nothing concrete. A few blurry photos of the hotel and its grounds But no sign of Mussolini.
0: But despite the lack of concrete evidence, Hitler couldn't wait. On the same day as the lackluster recon mission, the armistice of Cassibile became public. Signed five days earlier, the armistice effectively saw Italy switch sides and join the Allies. The Germans responded by launching an invasion of Italy.
1: The Italian peninsula descended into chaos. The Western Allies attacked Italy from the south, while the Germans invaded from the north. And the need to rescue Mussolini became even more urgent.
0: With the northern half of Italy now under German occupation, there was no reason for Marshal Badoglio to hold on to Il Duce as a bargaining chip. So, he ordered Mussolini's execution.
1: Scorsini and his team were running out of time. Without Mussolini, the plan to create a puppet state in Italy would crumble and leave Germany's southern flank exposed to the Allies. The entire future of the Third Reich hung in the balance. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the Raid on Grand Sasso, Skorzeny's operations in the final years of the Third Reich, and his post-war efforts to build a secret neo-Nazi army.
0: You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on Otto Skorzeny, amongst the many sources we used, we found Otto Skorzeny, The Devil's Disciple by Stuart Smith, to be particularly helpful to our research.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Joe Guerra and Kate Gallagher, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.